Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Well, we've got some changes happening, Jake. You, lots of changes. Lots of changes. And, and more changes happened today that one of our guests alerted me to. So we've had to do a rejig. Yes. Whilst we were already rejigging. Yeah. So for anyone that is outside of Australia or is not sort of up to date with what's happening within Australia, we've had some guidelines that I don't think they're officially released, but they're going to be released. There's a there's sort of an early sort of prelude to what's actually coming. And so we've got two two guests here. Um, Dr. Puriya Marathi, who's a plastic and reconstructive surgeon here in Sydney, Australia, and Sherry Lee from Western Australia, who's a registered nurse and also the president of the CNA, which is the Cosmetic Nurses Association. Yeah. And again, for those people maybe listening in America or elsewhere, so APRA are, are the name of the board who sort of look after all medical practitioners as well as other practitioners, actually. And so it's their kind of new guidelines, particularly for cosmetic uh, industry and they've sort of broadly divided into surgical and non-surgical so hence we've got a surgeon and uh, a cosmetic nurse here so guys maybe we'll start with sherry lee ladies first sherry did you want to just um introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about your background so we know where we're starting well i'm a registered nurse and i would consider myself a, a bit of a dinosaur in the <laughs> um industry i just the other day realized that I'm in my 30th year of being a cosmetic injector this year. Wow. Um, so I was very young when I started. <laughs> no, I um so obviously the industry has changed massively for me over that 30 years in many, many ways. And, and you know, you can ask me anything you want to ask me about that. I won't bore you with it, but it's revamped itself and taken many twists and turns in many forms. Um, but it's something I'm very passionate about. And um, being a founder member of the Cosmetic Nurses Association is about continuing to make sure that we are putting um, patients over profit, but also making a safe environment for all injectors. And I believe that's across nurses. Um, you know, cosmetic physicians, plastic surgeons, dermatologists, anyone in the industry, um, we all need to be on the same page. We all need to be putting patients and safety first. And so I'm very passionate about that. And hence, I've um, stepped into the role as the president this year of the Cosmetic Nurses Association. But I've been working on the board, the advisory board for I think three years now, um, it was established during COVID and there's been much work in the area of governance over that period. So we've had lots of changes, which we can talk about as we go through things. But 
Um, for myself, I um, work in my own practice with, with doctors and other nurses. Um, my own practice has taken many different shapes and forms over the years, but I like to work collaboratively um, across the industry. And um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Fantastic. Well, we couldn't think of a more qualified nurse to come on, the president of the Cosmetic Nurse. Oh, thank you. And also we're good friends. So yeah, welcome. Yeah. And Ziggy, I don't know if you remember this. It's almost yeah. 200 episodes since you were here with us. Uh, in the 200? Yeah. yeah. So you were episode wow. 13 and 14. Yeah. So it's been a while. And would you like us to call you Puria or your porn star name Ziggy? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, you know, Ziggy's fine. Ziggy's fine. <laughs> right. I, I always start as Puria and end up as Ziggy. So no, Ziggy's fine. Yeah. Well, congratulations, guys. 200 episodes later. That's that's amazing. Um, I, whenever I drove drove past your old the old uh, studios, I uh, I think of you guys. Um, I went there on Monday, good way or Sunday, and Monday actually. Don't explain all the eggs on my building. <laughs> <laughs> In different way. I was there on Sunday. I drove past it on Sunday and good times. Um, yeah, so as well as introduction, hi Shirley, um, hi Jake and David. Uh, I'm a you know Sydney-based plastic surgeon, as you said. Um, I do have some clinical governance roles. I have been on ASPS Council. Uh, I have been the president of New South Wales ASPS uh, and I currently am the state, New South Wales State Chair of training of plastic surgical registrars and sit on the education board and on the curriculum task force. Um, and I've got a predominantly cosmetic plastic surgical practice in Sydney. And I work at uh, a teaching hospital called Prince of Wales Royal Hospital for Women and Sydney Kids Hospital here in uh, Randwick. Um, and I'm pretty passionate about all these changes as well. So for, yeah, for the people that don't know, and I, I think you, uh, I'll send you, I don't know if you two have both, advanced copies of the surgical and non-surgical uh, guidelines from the APRA. And they're pretty f- far-reaching uh, guidelines that I think we'll all go through. So I'll leave it to you guys. Yeah. And I'm going to put a disclaimer in here. And like you say, it may change again because uh, these things are supposed to commence from July 1st. And, you know, Sherry Lee pointed out today that something has slightly changed, particularly for the nurses uh, and particular levels of nurses or grades of nurses. So everything that we talk about now may still change again. Is that, is that your understanding, Sherry Lee? Are you guys still in consultation with APRA from a nursing perspective? Well, we have achieved all of our objectives that we um, set out to achieve um, with the position statement that was um, dropped today um, or posted today. Uh, whether that is APRA's final position on things um, is, you know, remains to be seen. We were told that the consultation process had closed in um, March, in February, March, um, but we went back again because we weren't happy with the position of um, the aspect of clarification around the enrolled nurses um, position, but also around the clarification of what a high-risk area really looks like and what they were relating to that in terms of the data and the science. Um, and and we're very, very happy that they have um, taken that on board and reclassified those things for all of us. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure whether whether that's it or not. It depends, I guess, on who who's still in consultation with them. I think there's some there's some very there's still some grayness around the area and Sometimes I wonder whether that's intentional so that there's room to move or whether that is actually just 
an oversight of not getting too specific. Um, I'm not too sure, but um, but we're very happy with where we've sat. We're not we're not delighted with everything that is that is in the position statements, but yeah. we understand. I think sometimes you get to step back and go, well, actually, there's reason behind that, and we can be reasonable out about some things. We've gone okay, fair enough, and other things we've really gone no, that's unacceptable. That's not actually okay with the nurses. So yeah. those are the things we really push back on. Okay. Now, I thought I'd start with you, um, Ziggy, Buria. <laughs> um, our non-Australian listeners won't have a clue what we're talking about. So I want to set the scene here. And to my understanding, and maybe your understanding, this is this all sort of kicked off on the back of a TV documentary that was shown, was it a year ago now? Which one? Are we uh, There's been a few uh, of them. Okay, well, the, <laughs> the one about cosmetic surgery, well, where there was some interesting practice. Well, going on. maybe it even goes back further than that. And you know, I'm happy to put my hand up and, and say I was involved in the Cosmetic Institute, which kicked off in 2012 and really ramped up cosmetic surgery here in Australia. We had a, a couple of bad incidents that happened in that business, mm-hmm. um, but there has been a an issue. There's always been a lot of media attention around cosmetic surgery, cosmetic injectables. It's it's a very salacious topic that tends to attract a lot of media attention, a lot of horror stories. And there was always this recurring cyclical nature of these stories that would sort of come up in the media. Mm. And there's been people from different factions within the industry, plastic surgeons, cosmetic surgeons, cosmetic physicians, cosmetic nurses, all in what I would call a bit of a tumultuous sort of environment where everyone's sort of trying to put their hand up and say, this is the way things should be done, whilst these negative stories continue to sort of be propagated in a, in a cyclical sort of manner. And I think that what's happened, in my opinion, and um, Ziggy, correct me if you think I'm wrong, obviously we want to get your opinion, but I think that eventually this has gotten the attention of the regulators and they have now taken a broad stroke and and sort of implemented or looking to implement some pretty significant changes across the industry as a whole. Mm. Would that would that be a fair summary, Ziggy, or do you want to add to that? Oh, I think I think this has been going on for tw- 10, 20 years, as long as I can remember. Um, and it all com- comes down to uh, you know who's allowed to operate. And in in our country, anybody with a medical degree historically uh, is, can call him or herself a surgeon because we have a bachelor of medicine and a bachelor of surgery. Um, the Australian Medical Council uh, accredit- has accredited the Royal College of Surgeons and two other c- uh, colleges, obstetrics being one of them, and ophthalmology, I think, is the other one. Um, and the Royal College of Surgeons has nine subspecialties, and we all go through a rigorous training program and a selection program to get in. Uh, and then at the end of it, we call ourselves orthopedic surgeons, plastic surgeons, urology, urology surgeons, ENT orthopedics, cardiothoracics. Um, and historically, pa- pa- uh, there's been uh, other groups um, uh, who can call themselves a cosmetic surgeon, which was historically not a protected title. The reason I say historic, um, now it's been passed through through all the bad press it's gone through. Um, the, the Queensland government is just about to pass, uh, hopefully pass a motion that only a surgeon can call him or herself a surgeon. And the definition of a surgeon is one that has accreditation or degree from one of those three entities that AMC approves. And that's been a big battle that's been going on for years and years and years. And you can, uh, you know, argue who's right or who's wrong, but it all comes down to, you know, training and skill. 
and safety. Um, but last year, with all the bad press, I think the medical regulators were made to look very silly um, by, you know, outlier clinics or practitioners that just didn't, you know, didn't perform to what may have been uh, may not may not have been the standards that upon other people would would agree on. And I think that then, you know, led to an investigation and then a report that's come out. The problem with the report is, for those that haven't seen it, it's very overreaching um, and it really uh, degrades the sovereignty of the doctor-patient relationship. So what they've brought up is, uh, and they they haven't brought up clarity on it, they're going to bring an endorsement model for cosmetic surgery. So if you want to have your medical registration say that you're endorsed in cosmetic surgery, you need to apply for it. Um, and sh- and at the moment it will show, you know, recency of practice and what you do, but also where you've got your qualifications from and whether that college or institute or whatever has been endorsed by the, a- by a- the AMC. We're, we don't know how that's going to work. So at the moment, we're assuming that one of those previously mentioned AMC degrees, Royal College of Surgeons, uh, you know, and a, a plastic surgery, ENT, ophthalmology, uh, not ophthalmology, uh, ENT, general surgeons are part of that. We're assuming that we would get endorsed and then apply. But what we don't realize is that maybe a university can create their own surgical program. We don't have clarity on this. And if a university creates their own surgical program and allows surgeons to be endorsed to do cosmetic surgery, it's potentially going to create a two-tier system where you've got college of surgeons with all the rigorous exams we do, and then possibly a university creating a secondary model. So there's no clarity on that. So there's a lot of um, anxiety amongst everybody on, well, who's going to be endorsed and how is this endorsement model going to work? Um, and the other stuff we'll talk about, but that's one of the that's one of the big things that's come of it is the unknown uh, what and who is going to endorse a surgeon. Yeah. Now, Sherry Lee, what's your take on the non-surgical sort of um, reaction from APRA? Because you know a lot of this was about surgery, and you know the documentary that I mentioned, and then. I guess, you know, just to sort of do a 360 cleanup, APRA have decided that everyone under the umbrella cosmetic will, will be included in these new guidelines. So what, what's your take on, I guess, why now, I guess? Well, I think as Ziggy was saying, it's it, it's been going on for a long time and it's been a back and forth of, of whose real estate um, this area of uh, medicine, if you like, is. Um, I remember sitting in audiences um, back in the 90s and, and the argument between nurses and doctors or GPs or cosmetic physicians was alive and well and quite fiery at that time. And um, there was no clarity around um, you know, nurses working under doctors in in 2016, there was more clarity around the telehealth system and the and what a medical assessment and then a prescribing 
um, document look like and what was actually, uh, it became much more clear. And I think that was a good thing in terms of we became very clear of what the responsibility of a doctor and then a nurse is in the relationship with the patient. And we all then had our roles very clear to us. So that helped. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of these chain um, type clinics where they offer, you know, the surgical, the non-surgical, et cetera, we all got wrapped up in one bundle and APRA said, right, we're going to deal with this bunch this time and we need to be very clear. But they didn't realize that there's a lot of unraveling around that, I think. And it's, so we've had um, four, maybe five um, position statements in the last 18 months. And there's been a lot of flip-flopping around and back and forth and a lot of changes in the non-surgical space. Um, and, you know, while it's the position statement that was released today is a lot clearer. There's still these gray areas around scope of practice, accountability, and what adequate training really looks like. And I think feeding back into what Ziggy was saying, it's the same for us. What is adequate training? Um, if I am a brand new cosmetic nurse and I'm unconsciously unaware of what my requirements are and someone says you just do a two-day course and you head out there and start your own clinic and that's completely adequate then maybe that's what I think um, unless I'm referencing somebody else that knows more and has been in the industry long enough um, and that we know is fraught with risk and danger for the patient and and also for the nurse if you you don't know what you don't know I'm 30 years in 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 practice and I still go to conferences and I attend things and I go wow that's an interesting way of looking at something so we're always learning something new about the industry I I think about those days when I had no idea about how relevant the deep anatomy really was. And I think, oh dear God, how did I get through? <laughs> how did I get through those times without more complications? Because we weren't using as heavy fillers. We weren't injecting as deeply. We were injecting in the skin and we were, you know, therefore we were safer. So there's all sorts of things that have changed over the years. So if you're coming into the industry now it's very different to how it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago and I think all of those things need to be reconsidered and th this is the starting point I guess yeah yeah just direct a question um, back to you Siggy and um, I, I, rem I remember these days and um, I'm sure Jake does well, actually I don't know if you're in the country at the time but you know the the Australian uh, Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons ran a very vocal campaign there was a concerted effort to try and distance themselves from from cosmetic surgeons and, and there was a lot of heavy uh, lobbying for increased safety regulatory changes um i understand there's there's a lot of confusion around what you're talking about in terms of who, what what colleges or where people are going to be able to get educated to become surgeons or be able to call themselves surgeons but these changes is this what you guys wanted overall and sort of if not where where has the disconnect sort of sort of happened Oh, look, I think the disconnect is where we talked about endorsement. But if you look through the um, restrictions that have been brought in, hmm. so now every patient has to see a GP to get referred to a, to a surgeon. And the, the GP groups aren't liking this. Just literally today, I, we now we make it mandatory for patients to go to a GP. I got two letters today from a GP 
wrote a whole paragraph. I am writing this referral to you because I have to. I do. I do not take any responsibility for any outcomes from this cosmetic operation. Wow. The patient can make her own decision about this. So the GPs aren't happy. So now, however many hundred thousand people have to go to their GP, get an unnecessary GP uh, consultation. Um, because a lot of the patients, the, the GP can't help them with this in this cosmetic journey, right? So now the GPs are upset and just taking up time, taking up Medicare funds, and then also um, the GPs don't want to have responsibility because by referring, they are partly responsible for the outcome. The other thing that the guidelines, I mean, it's shocking when you look through it, is if I am, if I I cannot now refer to another cosmetic plastic surgeons. So let's say I want to refer to a colleague of mine who does very good uh, upper eyelid blepharoplasties. For example, Dr. Somia, I refer mitosis and my upper eyelids to. I can't refer to him anymore. I have to say to the patient, I can't refer to Dr. Somia. You go to your GP. Your GP now refers to you to Dr. Somia. Or if I want to send someone for a, a facelift or, if, you know, I've got, I want a second opinion from a colleague, I can't refer to another colleague. So that's insanity um the other the other problems are um uh, mandatory two consultations from consent it's it's everyone does consent differently okay one consent or two consent or three doesn't mean that the one's better than the other but now they've brought in uh, mandatory two con consents um, of which they have to be face to face and one week before surgery so this really discriminates against our regional patients. Yeah, I go to Port Macquarie, um, and I have a lot of regional patients, and we do telehealth, a couple of telehealth consultations, and if they're happy, they come in for an operation during a visit. But now they have to come and fly twice to come and see me, once for a consult, fly back to wherever they fly from, and then yet again come back. So it's disadvantaging the patients, and all this will do is send them overseas because it makes it easier to go overseas. Mm. They've brought in a body dysmorphic assessment um, and all psychologists that I've talked to, it's just a questionnaire that we do, say this is just not validated and it, it doesn't help. It's a, you know, you, nobody wants to operate on a patient that's psychologically not sound, but this questionnaire is not going to stop that. Mm -hmm. um, you have to now on all your consent forms tell the patient how they can make a, a HCCC or a medical board complaint about you. So we're not allowed to ask for good reviews, but we have to encourage patients to give bad reviews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, you know, if, if, if the medical board said every surgical patient needs two consultations, hip replacement, knee replacement, like open heart surgery, then I have no problems with that. But by singling out a one particular uh, subspecialty, is, I think it discriminates against the patients and the people providing. A good example is if I'm doing a tummy tuck and it's a skin-only simple tummy tuck, it is very low risk, I have to abide by these rules. But if I have a patient that's lost 100 kilos, and has a skin apron coming down to her belly button, to her knees, that's not deemed cosmetic because there's an MBS number for it. I'd, I'm not bound by those same rules. So the more complex operation that has higher risk, 
I don't need to go through these avenues, but the more simpler operation you do. So there's, it's encroaching on the doctor-patient relationship and it's insulting to everything that we as good clinicians have you know, practiced all these years for. Mm. So what has been the reaction um, amongst your colleagues and, and your representative bodies? And what do you... I guess what what's your reaction to it going to be? Is it are you going to look at to try and lobby or in, have further interactions or conversations with APRA or where is this at? I think uh, we we've we've talked to our uh, our councils and they tell us that they have they've, they've tried to talk to APRA but can't get you know they can't get answers. So they're looking at avenues through lobbying and through other ventures. We've been told. Um, uh, and I guess it's a watch the space, as, as we said, as you guys alluded alluded to before. It could be a a very organic document that could change over time. Um, I think the AMA and the Royal College of GPs aren't happy with the document, and they may make it uh, make a noise as well because every 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 subspecialty it affects them in one way or, or another. You know. Mm. Um, so the GPs, the, you know, the more powerful group than we are as, you know, plastic surgeons, they might have an inroad with APRA. Mm. There, there was one other um, stipulation that I saw that sounded sensible, but I guess I don't know the difference. They want higher standards for cosmetic surgery premises with accreditation. So what's currently allowed and, and what does that new stipulation mean? Well, I th- I, this, is, this is actually, David, um, from your days back at TCI, before the TCI dramas that happened, uh, you we could do not that I did, but you could do twilight sedation surgery um, in your clinic. Okay, uh, and after all the dramas that uh, uh, David alluded to, those couple of ca- a few cases or a couple of cases, New South Wales brought in a rule that said any invasive surgery has to be done in a proper day hospital. It can't. And you need special licensing. So this has been around for, for ages, and I think that's totally fine. The definition of invasive was a certain amount of liposuction and breast augmentation, for example, or facelift or anything like that. So, um, you know, you can cut out moles in your rooms, but if you want to do an invasive procedure, you need to do it at a facility that has the ability to uh, convert a to twilight sedated patient to a general anesthetic patient. So they could be... I think that's totally fair, and that's always that's been around for at least five, six years. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there's any major changes in that. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that upshot of this is likely to be that this becomes too hard basket for many patients that are going to be looking into getting a cosmetic procedure done here in Australia and realise I'm in Perth, the surgeon I want to see is in Sydney. I don't want to come and do two consults. I'm just going to hop over to Thailand. And get a surgery there. I might hop over to Turkey or Lebanon or wherever it is, and we sort of feels like we're back to where we were almost ten to fifteen years ago when this was a bit of an epidemic of people going overseas. And there's a lot of patients coming back with issues, and there's a lot of concerned surgeons here in Australia that were having complications, rocking up on their doorstep, not being able to go back and see their operating surgeon. So, do you see that that's going to become an issue again? And and what is the commercial reality of what this is potentially going to do to practitioners such as yourself? And I guess you're a very established surgeon. You've been around. You've got a great reputation in Australia, particularly here in Sydney. There's a lot of surgeons that are just graduating. They're new into the space. 
what do you see is going to happen from a commercial perspective for them? I think the barrier to entry is now so hard. Now, the barrier to entry is harder for a cosmetic surgeon without uh, the, the FRACS behind him or her um, because the insurance companies are not insuring them as much. The insurance cost, it's, just, it's harder for them to get in. Historically, if you're a junior surgeon, cosmetic or plastic, you get in there, do the cheap breast augmentations, do lots of volume, it's low margins. But now the barrier to entry is harder because patients are going to want to, if you're a cheap breast augmentation patient, you're not going to want to try <laughs> fly twice to see a uh, surgeon. Um, and now there's going to be, it's going to be harder for these, for, for the junior people to start out. And of course, the patients are going to go overseas because if you're, if you're in a, if you're in Cairns and you have to fly, you know, I've got lots of patients from Cairns. Now, for me, I'm lucky first mover advantage where, you know, and you're established and you could say to a patient, look, you're going to have to come twice. They fly, you know, $200 flight back and forth twice. You know, it's, it's, it's not as, it's not as it's not the worst thing for my patients. It's it's annoying, but it's not the worst. But from from the majority of other like you know other surgeons possibly, and other patients, they might just go. You know what? Too hard basket. I could just go to Bali. I can go to Thailand again or oh. Turkey because it's already cheaper over there, and now it's actually easier because I don't have to do the two consults, two two flights. Mm. Yeah. It, yeah, and if you look at the APRA guidelines, <laughs> I was looking through the uh, guidelines today. They've said you should not encourage people to do, have cosmetic surgery. They're actively trying to tell us not to operate. I mean, it kind of sounds anti-competitive. It, it sounds like it's it's going to have a a huge impact on the entire segment of that industry. Well, and the other thing is that you know I've sent you several patients, and you know I like to think that I have some understanding of surgery because my background is surgery and I could pick you know good patients who are relevant for surgery and you look after them whereas now I can't do that I can't do that either they've got to no. go to GP who who actually doesn't know anything about cosmetic surgery it's in the guidelines they're not allowed yeah. to be a specialist or have any yeah. interest in cosmetics it's it's bizarre it's very bizarre mm. it 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 it, it, it kind of it's a little bit insulting to the patients because I, you can get a patient to come into our public hospital and has the most major operation and they don't really know what operation they're having in terms of what devices they're going to use uh, um, and they don't have cooling off periods. Uh, maybe they should too, who knows? But here's the thing, you go talk to a knee replacement patient or a patient that goes and gets a hernia repair and you said to them, can you tell me what the knee replacement's made of? Are there, is it cemented, not cemented, titanium, steel? Mm. They'll have no clue. My, the cosmetic patients are the most educated patients already. They know everything about the implant. Uh, Cheryl Lee probably talked to all the fillers. They know so much about the fillers. My, my patients go, are you using texture to smooth, round or this, under the muscle, over the muscle? And it's that education that they get through all of our social media platforms, which is another topic we have to talk to today because they're – nullifying that as well they know everything about the implant yeah i don't have one patient that has no idea about the implant but if i talk to my orthopedic colleagues i can guarantee you the the patients have no idea what device is being used on those patients so it's insulting to think that you know the cosmetic patients are being led down and being tricked and coerced coerced into an operation 
Whereas, in fact, they're the most educated on the procedure they're having. Yeah, that's true. Now, Shirley, if we could bring you in, I feel like we've been ignoring you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe, I don't feel ignored. <laughs> yeah. would, would you be happy to sort of, Ziggy gave a, a really good um, sort of bullet points of the main changes. Could you do that for the non-surgical side? Because uh, most of our listeners or many of them are injectors, that this is really what they're here for. And there was a lot of miscommunication through the media when all of this stuff first came out. So can you just make it a little bit more succinct and just sort of spell out the main changes? Well, I think um, the main changes are really around scope of practice in terms of what particular nurse, qualified nurses are able to, um, what treatments they're able to perform. So there's a lot of changes to the enrolled nurse within the industry. Um, There were some changes to the nurse practitioners entering the space um, or changing, if you like, from registered nurses to um, nurse practitioners. But for registered nurses per se, Um, we've had a lot of clarification around what high-risk areas look like and what our responsibilities are in terms of relying on our prescriber and or... Shirley, can I interrupt for a second? You used this word before and I just didn't get it. I'm sure the readers are as uneducated as me. High-risk areas, is that, do you mean periorbita is that what you mean by high risk so so this has been under discussion a, a paper was um cited by APRA um that was actually a paper that was led by professor goodman in melbourne and it had um a collaboration of every um different area of specialty within the cosmetic space so dermatologists surgeons um cosmetic physicians nurses everybody that's involved in the area and it was actually a paper that talked about training a training pathway in order to prevent blindness so what should you learn first second third fourth etc and they they decided that high risk area was um perioral periorbital cheek um forehead glabella um pretty much everything except the jawline yeah. So so they use this for filler to, only. For filler only. For filler. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is all sorry. This is all about filler. Yes. So they used that to create their last position statement, which was uh February or March um this year. And it basically precluded enrolled nurses um from injecting any of those areas. So basically enrolled nurses working in the space almost became redundant overnight. Um, they they were put in a position where they actually could no longer really practice using fillers. Um, and prior to that, it was a case of um, there were some questions around Botox, the position statement before that, questions around where you could use Botox on the face, off the face, um, mm. and whether you could use laser, et cetera, et cetera. So enrolled nurses, particularly some changes to, to nurse practitioners. But it was our position also that if we agreed that those areas were all high-risk areas, then why would they allow registered nurses and doctors to inject the same areas with no experience or with less training or what you know whatever the case may be? If we're all working as a as a result of our scope of practice and as a result of our training, and we're all going through a similar training program, then yes, we have to have the basis of our education to support us. But if we've had that training and we've had that specialist training in terms of learning to do those fillers in those areas, then we should be able to, that's part of our scope of practice. So 
if we're maintaining our scope of practice, why can't we inject those errors? And so those were the questions we were asking really, and now that has been changed. And high-risk areas now, Ziggy, as of today, are clarified as glabella, forehead, nose. Okay. And And ENs can do it now or can't? They can't do those areas. Yeah. They are considered high-risk areas. Okay. Um, However, cheek, perioral, um, temples are back on, but with strict guidelines around supervision, being in proximity to a registered nurse and and, um, a nurse practitioner or a medical practitioner when they're doing those um, semi-high-risk areas, but also they have guidelines around working under a registered nurse, which is not new. An enrolled nurse always has to work under the supervision of a registered nurse. That's part of their scope um, of practice. Um, And not a medical practitioner, a registered nurse. So that's a grey area sometimes where people think it's, you know, an enrolled nurse works with a doctor, they have to work with a registered nurse that directly supervises them. And there are some changes to the amount of hours that are required and those are all in the position, position statement of today as well. And how an enrolled nurse now enters the industry has changed. Um, uh, there's some guidelines around nurse practitioners and what is required for them to maintain their nurse practitioner status within the industry, but also for those coming into the industry for the first time as new nurse practitioners. APRA has pretty much said that endorsement is unlikely because endorsement is about managing a team, managing um, further education of a team of nurses, um, researching. Um, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole lot of gardeners and they don't feel that um, there is a, an ability for advanced nursing practice um, within the cosmetic space, the cosmetic non-surgical space. Mm. I think that's controversial. I, I, I don't entirely agree with that. But I also understand what they're saying in terms of they want us to work collaboratively across across the specialties. So if you're working in dermatology and you're working in cosmetic medicine simultaneously, then that's collaborative and you're actually working across a medical space. But I guess that, you know, that's a bit gray too. So that's going to play out in time as nurse practitioners um, that are in this space at the moment go forward for further endorsement because it gets re-evaluated um, every year. Right. So did you know the only endor- APRA only has one endorsement um, module in its all in its gambit and it's acupuncture. So it's got endorsed acupunctures. So now we're getting lumped into the same category as acupuncture by having an endorsement model. Well, we're using needles. Makes sense. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> no, I, I didn't mean that. It doesn't make sense. No, no. Um, so, <laughs> so there were some changes with the enrolled nurses. I know that there was initially there was some fairly far-reaching changes for them, and I think today there were some changes that came through and sort of uh, put some things back on the table. I know there's some changes or some differences between enrolled nurses that are already in the space. So for example, you know, if there are some great enrolled nurses here in Australia, like Mike Clagg down in, in Victoria, who's an enrolled nurse, um, very experienced, used to work for Allegan, obviously, you know, works under Professor um, Greg Goodman. Um, they're not all equal. And so what are the what are the differences between, I guess, enrolled nurses that have been in the space for a long time and people now that are entering um, in the in the enrolled nurse position? Well, enrolled nurses that are already in the space, um, I think that was our biggest um focus in, in the in the change between the last position statement and this position statement was really pointing out 
that people like Mike Clegg are some of the most experienced injectors in our industry. He's well published. He's lecturing. I've I've learned a huge amount from Mike over the years. Um, he's giving back to the industry on a continuous basis. But the fact that he's an enrolled nurse is differentiating him and restricting him in terms of his operations and and what he can bring to the industry and to the patient safely. So we needed to really make very clear that the basis by which APRA decided to change that was not good information. And it was it was a surprise to us that it had come off of the back of one single person's opinion um, and not a collaboration of information. And the paper had been misread and misconstrued. So we reached out to Professor Goodman, who led that paper, and asked him to please clarify for APRA the purpose of that paper and to please clarify for us the purpose of the paper so we were clear that we were accurate in terms of it was a guideline to training to to create a pathway for all of us to follow in terms of how do you step yourself through risk areas? What should you learn first? What should you then progress to? That you don't learn lips today and temples tomorrow um, as a new injector and that what are, what are risks are you putting you know, yourself in, what um, position are you in in terms of risk at each stage? That was what it was for and specifically related to blindness. So it wasn't actually about vascular occlusion. It wasn't about, um, you know, the actual results. It was specifically about blindness and how you protect yourself as a practitioner and your patients from blindness accordingly. And what you're going to tell the patient about that at e- in each of those risk areas. So we needed to get APRA to understand that they were using the wrong information to actually put these guidelines in place. So the new position statement is much clearer. It's about forehead, glabella, nose. Those are high risk. The less high risk areas. So they describe them as high, high risk and high risk, which is very confusing because <laughs> it's all the same language. And I had to read it many times to go, okay, I get it, I think. Um, because it's it is, it's very, it's very confusing if you're reading it for the first time or you're trying to make sense of it. So that's the existing enrolled nurses, and they have to work on a registered nurse, not new. That's the that's their scope of practice. That is the same for laser resurfacing, for injectables, for anything they're doing. They have to have had. 75 hours of direct supervision and therefore being um, endorsed, I'm going to use the word, but basically the registered nurse has to deem them competent. I don't know what that looks like in terms of formality to APRA or just an agreement between the registered nurse and the enrolled nurse. Yes, I deem you competent. I'm taking responsibility for your um, practice and I'm here and I'm working with you. So that's, I think, what it is. Um, it's still like that. And um, and then new enrolled nurses coming into the industry, things have changed. They have to have done a minimum of a year of nursing um when they qualify as an enrolled nurse, which is a two-year course by and large, um, then they have to have worked in an associated specialty. So dermatology, surgery, I guess, um, you know, related, they're saying related um, in areas. So those are the ones I can think of. I can't think that you would, you know, where else would you work when you're getting indirect exposure to cosmetic medicine or surgery? And then you're working for um, 
a, a number of years actually within the industry. So it's going to take four or five years before you really get to an injectable position. I guess that makes me think that precludes enrolled nurses from coming into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why you would do that long pathway unless you are an existing enrolled nurse in a dermatological setting or you are working within a clinic, um, a laser clinic, I guess, or a, you know, some you're doing something else that not is not injectables, and then you might decide, hey, I think I might like to learn injectables. But I think it's going to limit enrolled nurses coming into the industry in that way. Yeah, you know what? Well, it's scary. I heard today from um, one of my friends that owns a clinic that a patient came in um, needing a high lace treatment and. Obviously, the first response was, well, you need to go back to the place that did your treatment. That's the the best person to look after you. The response was, oh, they said they weren't confident doing high lays. Mm-hmm. And I've heard this often, not every week, but every few months I'll hear something like this and we're talking about blindness. Um, it staggers me that there's no mandatory training um, or yearly sort of, you know, how you have to do CPR training every year. I see CPR like using high lays and being proficient with it is the same as probably having CPR training in the cosmetic injectable space that there are people out yeah. there who are sticking HA in people who don't know how to reconstitute high lays, mm. don't understand um, the pharmacology of it, how to inject it, dealing with high stress situations where they may be in an occlusion sort of environment. I mean, what do you think about I mean, maybe I'll po- go to Jake and then well, just well, say, Jake's the man. The irony is that Mike Clegg and Greg Goodman both wrote that paper that Arpra misinterpreted. They were both authors on that paper. Plus, they run probably the most well-known course in the country that teaches high lays uh, usage. So it, it's kind of, it's all backwards. Yeah, it's, it's, weird, it's insane. It? Yeah, um, Shirley, I wondered if we could also sort of focus on some of the more um, broader things, not just for nurses, but, you know, that just the non-surgical changes and there's a few things i don't think it's sort of sweeping changes it's not doesn't seem as radical as what's happened with surgery but can you just sort of list the bullet points and maybe just comment on them yeah i think i think the biggest change for us is this um assessment of body dysmorphic disorder um that's sort of hanging over us and looming on the first of july I think most responsible injectors are assessing their patients on a, you know, a regular basis, on an ongoing basis for BDD or body dysmorphic disorder. Um, we're doing it in a general sense. I, by no way, shape, or form, and and I've read a lot on it, and I'm very interested in mental health. Um, it's one of my previous, you know, I did psychiatry as part of my degree years ago, uh, psychiatric nursing, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, I, I've i read a lot, but I still don't see myself as highly qualified to make a diagnosis and I'm a nurse, so it's not within my scope. But likewise, neither do the doctors that I work with who are now responsible for, or will be responsible for creating a body dysmorphic disorder. And I think that people are dysmorphic in variation. My personal opinion is a patient that is going through a tough time, doesn't like how she looks, um, is, you know, what do you what do you hear with today? Why are you what are you worried about? I hate everything. It's all bad. It's terrible. So we then do a formal assessment of BDD on them. Are they 
more dysmorphic this week because they're going through a tough time. The husband left them for a younger woman, blah, blah, all of that conversation that, Jake, you and I would have on a regular basis with patients. And, you know, now you're looming on that BDD edge of, you know, of things. Okay, so I can't treat you today because you have to go and have a psychiatric evaluation, uh, you know, for BDD. Um, Well, great, because it's in WA to get into a psychiatrist is about an 18-month wait, um, and you're not going to have Botox or fillers for 18 months because I have, I not, the doctors have decided today that you have BDD. I can't imagine that that's good for anyone's mental health. I would like to think that with my experience and the fact that I always put my patients first and medical assessment and history taking is the first thing that we have to be doing, you know, before we even think about treatment planning, that I know the patients pretty well and I can be pretty discerning about whether somebody is really just in a bad space and we need to talk them around and say, you know what, I don't think we should be making any decisions about filler today. But I agree with you. I think a bit of Botox is probably going to freshen you up and make you feel better about things. And let's talk again about what else you want to do. None of us that are practicing with any with FX and practicing within a good scope of practice are going to give a patient in a in a compromising position mentally or a compromising position in their self-esteem everything they ask for. I want cheeks and lips and I want my temples done and my jawline. I don't know any reasonable injector that's going to go, no problems, fantastic, let's wrap that up, let's do it all today. We don't operate like that. Um, I'm sure there are people in the industry, unfortunately, that would be doing that. And so I understand the reasoning behind the BDD assessment. I really do. But I think the practicality of it is very difficult to, um, to actually implement. And then we have the factor of the CNA has reached out to several experts to ask about an appropriate document, and there isn't one. You know, there there isn't one. So the um, the what are they? The Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare is has got a um, an advisory committee that exists, and um, we have a, a, a collaborator. One of our board members is on that committee, and they cannot find a document that they are actually deeming as appropriate for BDD assessment. So we have a ruling that we have to do it. We don't have an appropriate tool that we can use to execute this. None of us, some of the GPs out there might be, but the nurses that are being um, overseen by doctors, the doctors are telling me they don't feel qualified to do this. GPs that I speak to, not only are they inundated now with all of the patients that want to go and see Ziggy um, and and the guys for surgery, but now they have to become experts in BDD as well. Well, I don't think that's really reasonable. So we have to involve the psychiatrist. So the GP now has to write a referral for the patient to see the plastic surgeon and write a referral for the patient to see a psychiatrist for BDD. And the psychiatrist wait is 18 months. And once you get in there, then you can be deemed you have BDD or you don't. And then you can go back to your practitioner and start your journey again, by which time your your referral has expired and you have to start the whole process again. So 
the execution is not well planned. There's no there's no guidelines around the execution, and we're really trying to get to the bottom of that at the moment. Um, because by you know by what the guidelines say, the position statement says we all have to start doing this, and I'm not quite sure how we're implementing that. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, we had we had um in our Patreon group last night we had a a whole heap of nurses turn up to a session with a, a medico legal lawyer who was talking to our to our members around what this all means and there was some, there was pretty scary conversations that were had around especially particularly this BDD thing um mm. it's yeah it's it's well, uncharted the, territory that's going to be <laughs> well the bottom line is medical legally a, a criminal lawyer who is suing you as the nurse or the doctor will effectively win because you don't have any expertise in you know diagnosing these things yeah so totally. patient can turn around if they're not happy with the result they're familiar with how to work the system maybe it's genuine maybe it's not but um you know you took advantage of me i was in a vulnerable position and all of a, all of a sudden you're you're sitting in front of a you know in a, in a courtroom with someone you know giving you a cross-examination and yeah scary well, stuff um, there were a couple of other sort of, I, I guess, more practical recommendations, which I actually think are quite good. I just, I wonder how they work logistically and, and when we do them. One was uh, providing a patient with a copy of the consent form, um, which I think is reasonable. And, you know, and in fact, to go home and reinforce what they've signed up to and, and the aftercare is a good idea. Um, and also uh, a copy of the treatment plan. Um what, what's your understanding? What needs to live on that treatment plan? Uh, is, is it just a screenshot of you know the face map with how many units went where, or or is it more than that, Shirley? Well, I guess it depends. It, I, I, my understanding is it's the treatment plan of the the treatments that you've started and what you have planned out. So that might be a single day. In some practices, they're not doing a full consultation and necessarily talking about right, these are the steps I think we need to take to get to where you want to be. In my practice, I spend a long time at the initial consultation planning out treatments maybe over a six-month or 12-month basis. I'm a fairly conservative practitioner. I like to take things slowly with my patients. I don't attract a clientele that wants a quick fix or have a quick in-out mentality. That's something I've actively worked at that it doesn't suit my personality and it doesn't suit my my practice style um so i would give my patients a copy of a treatment plan that i've created with my doctor that i work with with a medical consultation and it would be a 12-month treatment plan now that's by no means set in stone but it gives the patient an idea of what the plan is but at each treatment we are reassessing that so i think that you know again there's no clarity around whether you repeat that treatment plan every time you see the patient and alter it or whether you know that's the plan that's what we're doing um i give i have for many years given my patients a treatment plan um i just think it helps them consolidate in their minds what we've talked about at the initial consultation um and and financially what that may look like for them, but also, you know, in terms of bruising or in terms of their planning or wherever they want to be at, you know, where they want to get to what that looks like. So I've always done that. Um, 
I think giving patients a copy of it is a good, it's best practice, I think. Um, but also the consultate, the um, consent form, I think, is important because they read it. Um, we hope they read it thoroughly. You can't be sure. Um, there have been cases in the past where the patient in court has said, I didn't read it, I just signed it. And that's accepted, even though that's fairly unreasonable when you're asking a patient to please read the consent thoroughly and sign it when you're ready. And if you've got any questions, could you please, you know, and we're going through each point prior to that. Um, but that has happened. That has happened in the legal um, system and it's it's been accepted that that's what happens. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know how you can really change that as a practitioner, but that, but that goes to surgery or consents for anything. That, that's not unique to us. Um, and, and, you know, I just email my patients all of their paperwork um, on the day of their attendance um, so they go away with it. So I think you can implement those things really easily. And, of course, Jake, there was the um, implementation of the, um, the pick and the pill, um, the, the patient information leaflet. Hmm. And the patient information card, the pick and the pill. Um, I don't know, was that last year or the year before? Um, and those are basically an, a, a card or some kind of identification of the filler and or Botox that the patient has received, the drugs they've received on the day, um, and the batch numbers associated with those drugs, et cetera, but also post-treatment instructions um, in written form for the patient to take home so they have your contact details you know what the patient should be looking out for etc and um and and that's been implemented for a while but whether that actually happens in all practices i'm not sure but again it's best practice to be doing that yeah i was just going to mention and you sort of alluded to it um Best to email all of these correspondence to your patients. Don't just hand them a paper copy. At least that way you've got a digital trail to prove that you've sent it to them. And this might be an opportune time for anyone that's listening to engage a lawyer that understands this industry, has read the new guidelines, take your consent forms, take your aftercare forms, get them reviewed if there's areas that can be tightened up. Perhaps there's something that they sign on the day that says they have read and understood um, everything they need to before having procedure to make sure they're comfortable before you'll proceed. It. I just think now is the time to sort of look at your, <laughs> look at what you're doing, clean up your practice, have the lawyer review everything. Because I know there's a lot of people out there that when they set up their practice, they grab a consent form or a post care or from from a, a friend or a colleague, and they have it's you know it's the blind leading the blind sometimes. So I think that now is a good time mm. um, to clean up your house and get these things reviewed. I just wanted to add that yeah. in. Oh, that's yeah. really good point. Yeah. yeah. The other thing was financial consent that needs to be added on the consent form, which I, I again, I think it's great. Make it clear, you know, what it's going to cost, wh what a deposit means, what is what is a refund, or do you get refunds? But does that work for surgery, Siggy? Do they is that stipulated on your side on the surgery? Uh, well, yeah. So the new the new rules. I mean, most surgeons should historically just you know if someone changes their mind give the deposit back, you know, I, I, I think that's just being a good human being. But now what they've done is that you cannot um, take payment for, and this is another contentious issue with, with the guidelines, is you cannot take payment until one week after the consent has been attained. Now, the problem with that is uh, uh, we have to, you know, we, we're 
We go to private hospitals. We have to book our lists. A lot of the time, the hospitals want lists weeks to months in advance. Now, we can't book a patient on a list until they've confirmed and paid. Um, And in plastic surgery, we're getting squeezed out a lot of hospitals because we don't make them as much money as uh, uh, some of the other specialties through the funding through health funds. Um, So we're kind of getting smashed from both ends. We can't book our lists. So therefore, if you don't book your list, you don't get a list, but you can't take a deposit. So uh, yet again, it's, it's trying to create a rule to stop the bad players in the industry, but it's at the cost of all the, everybody else that's been doing the right thing for years and years and years. So yet again, it's another, I think another overreach where they don't understand the repercussions that 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 causes because, you know, you can't book your list. The hospital goes, okay, you've you've only booked half your list. We've given the other half away. And you're like, oh, no, no, but I'm going to get this other one, but I can't collect the money until this particular time. It just creates such a so so much confusion and complication in what is a pretty straightforward transactional arrangement. So you're gonna have so, to employ a debt collector to go around to people's houses with a credit card machine. Yeah, it makes us, you know, it puts us in a position where we almost look like we're being dodgy um, to the patient because we're being all smoke and mirrors. You know, you can't you can't describe what you do in detail on social media or on your website or or you know or in any way, shape, or form. Um, and it just looks like you not you don't want to say anything or you you know you you're being. I think it makes us worse. It, you know, oh you've you've got to give me the money, but you can't give me the money before you've had the consent, and then you have to come twice, and then I may or may not be able to book you because the hospital may or may not let me, and and you know because once I've got the money, then I have, it just makes us look shifty. And something that's you know been working perfectly well for a large proportion of the industry for a long time. It just to me, it's just illogical it's it's created all this d- drama around things that don't need to be dramatic the, the guidelines can be very kind of workable but they're not the yeah. way that they are and, and in the in the non-surgical space it's like you can't mention the product you can't mention what kind of training you've had you can't mention whether you can't say expert you can't say specialized you can't say um, you know, that you've got any experience at all because you may coerce somebody into coming to see you rather than somebody else who has no experience. Well, how is that helping the patient? I don't understand what that's doing for patient safety because I think patients deserve to know that somebody has been well-trained, what their education pathway has been, how experienced they are, what products they choosing you know they're using because that's all part of the education and the information gathering. We're not allowed to say any of that. Yeah. They've actually got to be in the room having a medical assessment and consultation before they're allowed to gather that information. And what if they're in the wrong place? They have to be strong enough to walk, to leave without going down that pathway. Yeah. If they even know, even if if, if they even realize. So I don't think I, I'm concerned about these new guidelines, whether they're actually patient-focused or not. Yeah. No, it's, it's written by people that don't practice cosmetic medicine. That's the problem. They don't, they don't understand it, clearly. 
And and Ziggy, I think you had further to add about your own advertising guidelines that are changing from July as well. Yeah, so the advertising guidelines and by advertising essentially, no one does billboards or post, it's print, it's social media and website. It is bordering on ludicrous, the stuff that you can't do now. So I wrote them down and I just gave up writing them down. If you want to have a read, you can't use the word tummy tuck. You can't use the word breast lift. You can't use you can't use the word BBL, Brazilian butt lift. You have to refer to the operation by its medical name. So you have to call it an abdominoplasty. You have to call it a mastopexy. You're not allowed to call it a tummy tuck. Now, in Australia, 4,400 searches are done on the word tummy tuck and only 1,900 words, 1,900 search for 1900 searches for abdominoplasty. So patients, this is, this is the problem. This is not a patient-focused. It's like you know, uh, someone that's not in the industry trying to teach someone in the industry how to do it, but the, this, the patients are looking for tummy tuck. So if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you can refer to a joint replacement as a joint replacement, hip replacement. But that's not the medical term for it. It's hip arthroplasty. Yep. So it's, it's saying to us, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's saying to us, so no, you can't call it a tummy tuck because that's not the medical term for it. Now, Brazilian butt lift, there's no, <laughs> there's no term for it beside a Brazilian butt lift, you know, fat transfer to buttock. Okay. You, so that, that is now that's, that's bad. Um, you can't use, it says you can't use emojis. Um, so I don't know how you're supposed to cover, cover the nipple during, um, for you know, any of your before after. So you, maybe you have to ha- haze it out or put, use a white dot. There's a white dot in emoji. Um, you're not allowed to interact with your patients. So if a patient on their page writes something, you can't like or make a comment about it. So if they tag you, you can't like or make a comment about it. You have to discourage them to, once they've done it, to take it off. Um, the before afters, they cannot be in, and it's a definition of sexualization. What is sexualization? That you cannot have photos in lifestyle photos. Uh, photos. So, photo in a room, photo in a hotel, photo in a car, photo on a beach, photo inactive wear, you cannot use those photos anymore because they are misleading. Now, you can only use those clinical photos that we do, the sterile photos in background. And every patient of mine that comes in that shows me a photo of what they want to look like, we as clinicians see patients as sterile background, arms down like this, different poses. That's how we see patients. Patients see themselves in clothing, in Activewear in 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 uh, swimmers, they bring photos of those images. They go, "This is what I want to look at." And they never bring a photo of this, you know, a side photo like this. He goes, "I really like that photo." That, <laughs> so, it's 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 not patient centric. It hasn't thought of how do, how do patients want to digest information. So, come the first of July, all of our photos. You know, you, you're doing breast augmentation. Breast augmentation photos. Are sometimes in a bra and swimmers, all banned. You have to take them all down. Now, one of I think one of the best rhinoplasty surgeons in in Australia, you know, dear friend of mine, Dr. Shahidi. All of his rhino photos are patient selfies that are sent in. Patient selfies are now banned. You can't have any selfies. So when patients 
send photos to you that you that they want you to share, you can't use those. Wow. So that means all of Sharon, every all of Sharon's page has to be deleted because they're all patient selfies. So they want all clinical photos that are, you know, like, you know, yeah, and we, we try to do that wherever possible. But the beauty of, you know, content, and this is the thing with consent, consent to me is not the moment the patient signs the form. Consent is the education that they get through every avenue of social media, through your website, through all the content they lead. Signing a form is just the last formality. If you're relying on that as your consent, that's where it all falls apart. Um, So I think think that, I mean, there's there's a lot more in that advertising guidelines, but they're kind of the really ridiculous ones. that have uh, that have been passed, and you know, I've had a colleague of mine, a senior colleague, <clears throat> who had APRA go through his or her—I won't say what gender the surgeon was—and they, you know, with a fine tooth comb, and found 250, 300 minor violations, yeah. saying if you don't change this, you will be deregistered. Well, there's actually people that have developed software now that actually go through and track. Your social be deregistered. So you you haven't done anything bad. You have, you know, had a stock image of a face for a drop down menu for facelift. Stock image saying this is not a real patient. This is a you know coercing patient. They'll look like that. Um, Saying you know I I operate at the best hospitals in Sydney or whatever. No, you can't use the word best. Uh, You can't use hashtags. Um, so, for example, if a patient has a transformation, great transformation for this patient, you can't use the word transformation as a descriptor because it's misleading. Selling a you dream. Can't, yeah, yeah you, you're living the dream, all those corny stuff. I get it. But, like, sometimes it is a transformation. You can't use the word hip dips, for example, uh, to describe an area of the body. It has to be an anatom- medically anatomical term. It it's bordering on ludicrous. Um, and that's the problem is uh, I did a survey. I got one of the forum companies, you know, the plastic surgery forum or yeah. one of the, yeah, they did a survey of their um, members, uh, you know, real members that digest this information. And they looked at the guidelines that were proposed by, of all places, our college. And the patients do want to see that sort of image. If you want to buy a, a Ford Falcon, Guess what? You want to see a photo of a Ford Falcon on the road in a car park. You want to see that car in different. I don't know if they, do they make Ford Falcons anymore. I don't even know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 I wouldn't. But but the, here's the thing with social media: if you don't like it, you could turn it. it off. You could turn it off. That's what targeted marketing is all about: is if yeah. the content is offensive to you, then. You don't follow it. Go back to f- following bonsai trees. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, you guys all need to get together. The, the nurses, the plastic surgeons, the derms, the GPs, mm-hmm. you guys need to unite forces and make sense of this situation. You're not going you're to win this battle fighting alone. You need to I tell you the irony? Upgrade. I think the yeah. irony is we all, this will unite all of us, cosmetic physicians, surgeons, nurses, yeah. and this will bring us all together. You can't use the word sculpt. Um, mm-hmm. the, the kicker, the, my all-time favorite, I'm just reading it now. 
Medical practitioners must consider the frequency of their advertising and social media posts and recognize that excessive posting, for example, daily, may contribute to body dissatisfaction and should be discouraged. Mm, that uh, Yeah, that's a huge overreach. Huge. <laughs> Better work on your handicap, Ziggy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so... so- I mean, let's try and summarize this because we, I guess we could just go on and on. Maybe, maybe back to Sherry Lee. So you, you essentially said, because you you represent the nurses and, and all of your tick boxes were essentially addressed. So how happy are you? And, 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 you know, what, what would you do from here? Moderately happy. <laughs> no, look, we're, we're happy in terms of the fact that we think we can operate safely um, and and with a patient focus within the guidelines that have been laid down today. However, the advertising regulations are difficult to work with. The BDD assessment is, I don't, I don't know. I don't. We don't have a solution for that. We're working on solutions um, for that, so we have issues around that. Um, but I, I think you know this overreaching of what what is logical and what is illogical to the general public. What concerns us greatly is there is a massive demand for the service, surgical and non-surgical, and if patients cannot access that service, we will push them underground. The bottom line is if you deregister yourself as a nurse or a doctor and you go about your business and you're still injecting because you can buy product off websites and you can access the product, the patients can access the product. We have patients turning up in practices at the moment already having self-injected and created their own vascular occlusions or created their own um, bad treatments there are patients that are turning up and saying i injected myself i bought the product off the internet and i've done x y and z and they they are needing help because they have got an occlusion or they have got something dreadful going on so practitioners are being put in that position already if we remove the ability for patients to be able to access these treatments this will become more and more and more common but opera can only govern healthcare healthcare professionals. So those people who are less ethical, less moral, less responsible, if you're not registered with APRA, they have no control over you. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the fact that if there's a demand, there will be someone who will supply that aspect of what we do. And that has gone, that it, I mean, Jake, you can speak to this more because you've been to the UK recently, but you also from the UK, and you know that has happened. There, are, there is a penetration law that allows for if you consent for somebody to penetrate your skin, then they can do it. And if you're not registered, you are not governed by the registration body, so you are not governed by APRA. And I think if we make it too difficult and we make it too um, unavailable. Um, the demand is still going to be there, and it's going to be a problem. It's going to be problematic because it's not going to help any of us, but it's not going to help patients either. We're going to have a disaster on our hands. Yeah, such a good point. I mean, I was also in the states two months ago in Miami, and 
you know, you, you see the journals, but also the TV, the adverts, they're crazy. They're advertising anything, antipsychotics and antidepressants in the middle of the football. <laughs> so that, that's the other extreme where anything goes. And, yeah. you know, before yeah. and afters, you know, they're ridiculous, but they're allowed. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the happy medium is, but this doesn't seem right. Um, so back to mm. you, Ziggy. So you're clearly not happy, but... You know, where do you go from here? Because if your board or, or college goes to opera and and nothing happens, I mean, so I said they need. They need to. I don't want to put words in, in anyone's mouth, but if it's going to affect your business, if it's going to affect patients, even, is there a risk that this could actually go to court? Um, suing opera—that's a good thought. Um, I think it. Yeah, I think you just uh, the, the the fundamental problem. This has all arisen because of so much infighting amongst the industry. Um, and uh, the irony is every, everybody wants everybody else to change, but no one else is willing to change and look, look in the mirror and see their practice, their sub, subspecialty practice. So maybe this will bring us all together. Um, uh, mm. and maybe, yeah, as a big group, I, go here, I, I, I certainly yeah. uh, I don't know about any legal battles, but the, I, I think getting the bigger group, the AMA will they they have a voice that can possibly help um uh, and you know maybe it was people within our industry that helped guide APRA into these into these guidelines who knows um uh, because there are people within our industry who don't want social media they don't want marketing they don't want advertising because uh, you know they use they, they get their patients from different avenues but at the end of the day, this is just not patient centric. It's it, it, it's trying to it's an overreach of the relationship within the doctor patient relationship, trying to tell you what to do. It discriminates against one subspecialty, um, whereas all the other subspecialties in medicine and surgery, you know, there's way more <laughs> bad behavior happening in the medical industry than in, in the cosmetic industry, um, and it just doesn't seem that it's uh, an appropriate uh, uh, move. Um, but it may change. Who knows? Yeah. But we're certainly mm -hmm. doing our best to fight it. Yeah. We've definitely, um, we definitely have reached out to um, ASAPs. We've reached out to the CPCA um, and, um, and, and, and obviously the nurses um, to collaborate on this and come up with something that, represents um you know what we want as adequate training not in a surgical sense but in a non-surgical sense um but also um you know what guidelines are patient-centric in terms of advertising in terms of of practice um and get a standard for best practice but then also move towards um a training module that can be um available across all specialties potentially um but you know we, that's we want to collaborate with all groups on this. Um, yeah. And as you say, the AMA have strength. Um, but we also don't always get a lot of support from our colleagues in the AMA in terms of what we do. Um, you know, uh, uh, certainly our guidelines were very much steered by one person from within our industry um, who was misinforming APRA and giving the wrong information. It's also not somebody that actually uses injectables, defining what high risk is and defining, you know, what should and shouldn't be appropriate was inappropriate. 
because it was the wrong information. So we very much took ARPA to task on that um, because it was incorrect. It wasn't accurate. Um, and so we've had those changes um, acknowledged. But, um, yeah, I, I don't – what the motivation for that is, we don't know. We, you know, we're not given that that information. Uh, well, it was almost two years ago to the day in this very room we we brought together yeah. – the current, oh, sorry, the the ex-president of the CPCA, Michael Moulton. We had Jacinta King, who was your predecessor as the president of the CNA. We had Stephen Liu and mm. David Lim representing mm. sort of plastics and derms, just to have everyone in the room to see mm. what we could do on this very issue. And I don't know if we we sort of had some sort of resolution, and and the plan was that everyone was going to meet and talk, and I don't well, think that happened. Well, now is the time. Um, yeah. The, the, thing, the thing with all the outcomes is during all, all the stuff that you saw on those shows that went wrong, they went wrong because the practitioners didn't have basic surgical training. All the, the you know, uh, Jake, you've done basic surgical training. You you know that all those major complications weren't cosmetically, it wasn't that they had bad outcomes. They, basic sterility understanding what infection is, knowing when to refer. You know, when you work it as a junior medical do doctor, go through the training program, you know how to take care of patients. You know, you're in the hospital system and that's what was lacking. So that's why you need, that's why going through, you know, the College of Surgeons, it's important, not because you're going to get the greatest results, but because you've got a baseline safety. I, I say to patients, and this is a quote from Malcolm Gladwell, and I won't bang on about it, is, um, in his book Outliers, he talks about uh, the what's it called the uh, bell curve, and the bell curve for every profession: carpentry, plumbing, tennis, golf, whatever. It's a bell curve is always the same for everyone. P people think that in medicine we don't have a bell curve; we've got a hockey stick. That everyone's awesome, everyone's excellent at one end, and there's not many that are bad. But it's like anything else; there is a bell curve. Um, there's going to be the average in the first middle middle bit of the curve, and then you got twenty percent on either side of the curve. Now, with good training, going through the College of Surgeons, and now I think there's some fantastic cosmetic surgeons out there, and I think there's some really bad plastic surgeons, right? But uh, with the bell curve, with good training through the College of Surgeons, if you just randomly get the middle of the bell curve of a cosmetic surgeon and the middle of a bell curve of a plastic surgeon who's gone through the College of Surgeons, the average surgeon in the middle of the bell curve is going to be better because they're going to be more trained. And Now, I'm not saying, um, as I said, I think there's cosmetic surgeons that will do a way better job in some operations than plastic surgeons, but it's all about the coin flip. The patient opens a website or flips a coin and picks a random surgeon. You want him or her to have the highest median skill set. And that's it. Forget about the allies. It's the median. And that's what proper training gets you. It gets you the, the median to be more to the right, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah. Well, I think, um, unfortunately, this may be a self-inflicted wound in our industry because of all of the, the noise that's being created and the infighting. I think if there was any time for everyone to take heed and learn to get on and collaborate and unite over this, now is the time. Um, Jake and I are doing our bit. We are very passionate about this. Yeah, thank you. We, we have built this platform. This is the official IA bat signal that is going out there to the industry. For anyone who's listening, pick up the phone, get your email addresses, talk to one another, collaborate, learn to get on. 
and fix this problem because this is going to be very bad for our industry unless we collaborate and unite and get it and get our shit together. Yeah. And time is ticking. July 1st is not far away. Yeah. So, you know, if you haven't read the guidelines, please read the guidelines for our patrons. We'll, we'll make it all clear and put yeah. it in our group so you can read it. But um, yeah, speak to the lawyer, like David said, speak to your college. Uh, if you're an enrolled nurse, registered nurse, speak to the CNA and uh, get your ducks in a line because I think it's going to be some people with a microscope on them. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you guys. It was mm-hmm. a good chat. I mean, there's so much there and it's it's hard to to go through every single detail, but we really appreciate you coming. Yeah. Um thank and you. Uh, we will be publishing Thanks. this this week. Yeah. It's a it express 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 publication because we understand the urgency. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank, um, you. thank you. Thank you, Shirley. It was great meeting you. Um yes, you too, Ziggy. I look thank forward you. to seeing you again soon mm-hmm. collaborating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity, um, uh, Jake and uh, David. It is it is a fantastic platform that you've created here for all of us to share in um, so many various topics. I love listening to IA. I don't always get to do it on a weekly basis, but I do um, binge binge listen um, and catch up on the episodes. But thanks for giving the opportunity for all of us to collaborate and to give some understanding perhaps to some of the patients too that listen to your platform that, you know, we do have our hands tied and our mouths gagged and it's very difficult. Um, you know, I had a patient that, you know, needs a, a blepharoplasty and our doctor can't refer her. Um, she needs to go to her GP who she thinks is not going to support her in her um, need for surgery. She wants to see an ophthalmic surgeon because um, that's where she wants to go, but it's all complex because she does, she's going to shop around for a GP that's going to give her the, the referral that she needs, and I just think that's inappropriate. It's, it's just not right that this should be happening. So it's good for us to be able to discuss this uh, on this platform. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. It's Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, Iggy. Thanks, Shirley. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks so much. Hey, guys. Just a quick message from Jake and I. On reflection of this podcast that we've just had with uh, Sherry Lee and Puria, we feel we have a responsibility to unite and rally our industry. Uh, The proposed changes that are going to be coming through from July 1 uh, are profound and will have a a huge impact on everyone involved, um, from plastic surgeons to dermatologists, cosmetic physicians, nurses, dentists, beauty therapists, anyone that's involved in, even patients, in fact, this is going to affect everyone. And we would like to provide an opportunity or an avenue for anyone that has concerns or would like to share their opinion. And um, we have set up a page on our website. If you'd like to head over there and put in your details and have your say, we we will be forwarding these to the relevant societies who will then be forwarding them to APRA. This is a moment in time where we need to stand together and fight back against these changes and finally unite and work on a way forward where we can all coexist in a sensible way, where patients are looked after, our industry is profitable for everyone, and we create a harmonious environment. So if you'd like to head over to our website, the address is www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash APRA, which is A-H-P-R-A. You can also find this page by going to our Instagram page, which is Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Click on the bio link and that will take you through to this form as well. So please take a few moments out of your busy days, fill out this form, have your say, and let's finally start moving our industry in a positive and united way. 
For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information. 